Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Wednesday night online only, and I'm so glad to have you with us. It's uh, Listen, I got to say it every time. We're missing you so much. <clears throat> Cindy and I <clears throat> often talk about it. Um, it's, I'm so glad that we have the wherewithal to come to you this way because I've learned that some churches didn't have cameras, didn't have any way to do this. But having said that, it's not the same as seeing you in person. Just like it's not the same to say you go to church um, online as a rule in your house and you never come to the gathering of local fellowship. Let me tell you, it's not the same. I'm looking at empty chairs and a red light on a camera, and I'm so glad that I can talk to you this way. But I really feel like we're coming down to um, some breakthroughs and being able to meet again. I've been talking to many different pastors. We've had Zoom meetings, and a lot of us have have just shared notes, and we really feel like reading Governor Abbott's uh, reports from time to time. It seems like we're getting closer to them saying, you can go ahead and meet. It may be limited at first, but we can go ahead and meet. So I'm looking forward to that so very much. Having said that, April 25th, this Saturday, we're going to be in the parking lot of TPC from 10 to noon and from 4 to 6. Now, we're going to be giving away communion elements. These are self-contained wafer and and juice in a a cellophane wrapper. And uh, we bought these before we were actually told we couldn't meet anymore. We were going to use them in just our own church services. And um, now they've really come in handy. So we're going to be here 10 to noon and from 4 to 6 in the parking lot of TPC. And we're going to be handing to you the elements. You're just going to drive in, let us hand it to you, drive out. You won't be in here long at all, long enough to say hey and uh, smile at a few people. And then out you'll go. And uh, that way we're going to be able to together Sunday morning, the 26th at 9, 10, 30, and noon, we're going to have communion together. And that's the next best thing to being there. And so I want to encourage you, if you can possibly make it, show up Saturday, this Saturday, 25th, 10 to noon, or 4 to 6. And we will be in the parking lot and handing out the elements. Uh, If you've got five people in your family, we'll give you five of them, all right? And so it's going to be good. We're going to have a great time Sunday. We're going to celebrate the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the stripes he received across his back, the body and the blood of the Lord. And we're going to have a great family time together. So I hope you'll take advantage of that. And if you can't make it, grab some saltines or whatever you have and some juice, whatever you have, and go ahead and have communion with us anyway, all right? Now, we're on Hebrews 11. We've been going through the book of Hebrews here on Wednesday nights. And you know, people have asked me uh, from time to time, why do you go through books? Well, let me tell you why. Listen carefully, because this is a lot of what I'm really about. This is my calling. This is why I believe God laid his hand on me to minister the word of God. And that is, Paul told the elders in Ephesus before he was about to leave and travel on and probably never see them again, he made this statement to them. He said, while I was with you, I never failed to teach you the whole counsel of God. Now catch that, the whole counsel of God. In other words, he's saying, as a teacher of the word of God, I was not one of these that just teaches little pet verses over and over and over ad nauseum. But he said, my my goal in, in, in ministering to you was to bring you the whole counsel, the whole word of God. And so that's what I believe the calling of God is on local churches. We are called to teach the people of God the whole counsel of God. Not just little parts of it, but all of it. So here at Turning Point on Wednesday nights, we go through whole books. And we have been going through uh, the book of Hebrews, rich, deep. I mean, deep waters here this book is. And um, tonight, we're going to be on the chapter that most of you are most familiar with when it comes to the book of Hebrews, and that is chapter 11. Now, a little bit of up, uh, just to bring you up to speed a little bit, last time we closed out 
Hebrews 10, having looked at the writer's admonition for us to cultivate endurance. He said, you have need of endurance that after having done the will of God, you might receive the promise. So they had need of endurance, hanging in there, staying with it. And um, then he closed out quoting the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, who said, the just shall live by faith. And that's how chapter 10 closed out. Now that is a perfect lead-in to chapter 11, widely known as the faith chapter of Hebrews. And most Christians are familiar with this chapter, as I said, more than any other part of the book, because it begins with a definition of faith, and then we have sort of the hall of faith, God's hall of faith, his uh, famous faith walkers, the faith walkers of the Old Testament. And so he begins with a definition of faith, and really, it's not just a definition of faith, but it shows the effect that faith has on the person who is walking in it. And we're going to look at that with each person we look at that we cover and that he covers. It's a long list of faith warriors. We're going to see that each one of them illustrated a different aspect of faith, how faith manifested in their life. Now, in verse 1, he begins with this definition. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, and it's the evidence of things not seen. So mark that in your Bible. That is one of the uh, most succinct definitions of faith in the entire Word of God. You ought to have it marked. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, before I break down two words in there, substance and evidence, I want to talk to you a little bit about faith. Because there's a lot of misconceptions out there about this thing called faith. First, nowhere in the Bible are we taught to place our faith in our faith. In other words, we don't place faith in faith. No, the faith that is taught in the Bible has an object. Faith has an object. Faith is the subject and the subject has an object. And the object is God. We don't put faith in faith but we put faith in God. So if you have faith, it should be toward God. We have faith toward God. That is faith's object. Faith looks at God. The Bible says, uh, looking unto Jesus, looking unto Jesus. How? With the eye of faith. See, so faith has an object. I place my faith in God and in his promises, not in my faith. Nowhere are we told to study the strength of our faith, the level of our faith, uh, none of that. We are to put our eyes on God, and that, and he is the object of faith. Nothing happens till faith focuses on God. We're going to see in this chapter that faith is not a force. You know, the force be with you. That's not what faith is. It's not a force that we wield to create the reality that we want. Can I say that again? Faith is not a force that we wield to create the reality that we want. Faith is a relationship word. That's what it is. Faith is how I relate to God. We're going to see in a little bit that without faith, it's impossible to please God. You must approach him by faith. You've got to believe that he is. And he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. All right? So, so faith is a relationship word. Without faith, there's no relationship with God. The flip side is faith makes it possible for us to have a relationship with the living God. When we come to him by placing faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Faith is actually unconditional surrender to God and to his will. That's what faith is. It is trusting him, and that includes believing him, which means that we also believe his promises. If I believe in the character and the person of God, then I have no problem trusting in his promises because a promise is only as good as the one who made the promise. So if a, uh, if a dishonest person makes a promise to me, their promise means nothing because I'm not going to believe them. But if a thoroughly trustworthy, 
faithful, sterling character kind of person makes a promise to me, I'm going to put stock in that promise because of the person who made the promise. And it's that way with God. God gives me promises that whoever puts their faith in his son, Jesus Christ, will be saved, will go to heaven. Well, see, I believe that promise because I believe in the promise maker and his character. God never intended for faith to be some power that we wield to get whatever we want. That is not what faith is about. And it's not a force we use that makes God jump like he's some kind of divine bellhop. Well, I'm going to confess the right thing. I'm going to say the right thing. And when I do it, God in heaven is going to jump like my servant because I happen to say the right thing. No, that's not what faith is. Faith is the means by which we relate to God and believe him to bring his will for us and his kingdom to pass. That's why John said that if we pray according to his will, then we know that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know we have the petitions we've requested of him. Well, we've got to pray according to his will. If it's not according to God's will, God's not going to jump for anybody. God moves in answer to prayer made in faith according to the will of God. And that's what faith is. I relate to God today all the way here in my car. I was praying and I was relating to God, fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit, enjoying his peace, his presence. And that all happened by faith. So faith is primarily a relationship word, and it is the means by which we approach God to request of him to bring his will to pass in our lives and in the world. Now, that said, let's look at the word substance. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, and it's the evidence of things not seen. The word substance, very interesting word. It means that faith brings the confidence that something I'm hoping for is coming. The word substance has to do with the future, and it has to do with hope. Hope is always looking down the tunnel of time, the road of time, believing that in the future, either sooner or later, some good thing is going to happen. That's what hope is. So hope and substance have a future focus. It may not be here yet, but I'm assured it's going to come. I am, in fact, convinced of it. Faith is the substance of things I'm hoping for. So substance is the underlying conviction that what I'm hoping for is one day going to become a reality. Uh, For instance, every Christian believes that someday we're going to be in heaven. You believe that, don't you? You believe that someday. I mean, wasn't that what the gospel was all about? When we first heard it, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him would not perish, but have what? Say it out loud, everlasting life. That's a promise. John 3, 16 is a promise made by the great promise maker, the Lord Jesus Christ, and of course, by definition, God. God made that promise. And what does that promise do? It causes us to hope, all right? We have a substance in us, a hope that what we have staked our life on, placed our faith in, is going to come to pass. One day, we're going to be in heaven. The trumpet shall blow, dead in Christ will rise. Those of us who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So so we place our hope in a future event. So that's one of the aspects of faith. It is the substance, the hope of something wonderful in the future, sooner or later becoming a reality. Then the writer uses a second word, the evidence. And evidence and substance are two different words. Though they have some things uh, in common, they are also different in other ways. Um, Evidence goes a little bit further than substance does. Evidence means that faith convinces us of things we can't see. See, the word evidence doesn't necessarily have to do with the future. It has to do with what we believe is true right now. 
Faith is the evidence of things we can't see. So by faith, I become convinced that, for instance, God created the world. Well, that's not something I'm hoping for in the future. I believe right now, in my now, today, sitting at Turning Point Church teaching you, I believe that right now, God created the world I live in. Well, I wasn't there when he did it. I wasn't there when he flung the stars into space. I wasn't there when he said, first and foremost, let there be light. I wasn't there when the fishes of the sea and the birds of the air uh, sprang into existence. I wasn't there. But the Bible tells me God did it. And so my faith says, amen. God did it. It's the evidence of things I can't see. That's how faith operates with God, by faith, by believing God. As a matter of fact, let me read to you um, a verse. It says, by faith, by believing God, we know that the world and the stars, listen to this. This is beautiful. This is Hebrews eleven three, and he's explaining the way faith works. By faith, by believing God, we know that the world and the stars, in fact, all things were made at God's command. And they were made from things that can't be seen. An invisible God made visible things. All right? And, and how do we know that? Because he said in Hebrews 11 verse 3, we know that. Well, how do we know that? We weren't there. We know it by faith. We know it by faith. And it's not blind faith. I can hear some of our agnostic and atheist friends saying, yeah, there you go, that's just blind faith. You're just saying believe it blindly because your, your comic book Bible tells you to. Well, let me tell you something. For me, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look around and look at the creation and say there is no way on earth ever all of this sprang from nothing. See, nothing can only produce nothing. Something never comes from nothing. You can't give what you don't have, neither can nature. Nothing produces nothing every time. There had to be something to create something else. And so when I look at creation, I have to agree with the psalmist. The heavens declare not evolution, but the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork, Psalms 19. Day unto day, they talk. Night after night, they show forth knowledge. There's no voice nor language where their voice is not heard. Their sound has gone out to the ends of the earth. See, when I look at the creation, it only affirms what my faith has already embraced, that God made everything, and that's what faith does. Faith is the substance of what we're hoping will come later down the road and become a reality in our life. And it's the evidence that the things we cannot see are real nonetheless. An invisible God made visible things. And that makes total sense to me. So faith is the assurance that things we're hoping for will one day be ours. And it's the evidence, the proof, and that things we cannot see or we weren't there to witness are nevertheless true. They're true. So look how crucial faith is. Now, the writer is going to launch into a list of Old Testament personalities who exemplify and illustrate faith. He begins with a very broad sweep without naming names yet. He says in verse 2, for by it, that is by faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. God is telling us was pleased with the Old Testament saints he's about to list, and many that he did not list, uh, who lived a long time ago because they had faith like what he just described. They walked by faith, faith being the substance of things they were hoping for and the evidence of things that they could not see. They walked by faith and not by the sight of their natural eyes. Now, verse 2 is telling us that God not only bore witness about them, in his word, like Hebrews chapter 11, but also to them. 
regarding the victory of their faith over great obstacles. God literally, it's telling us in verse 2, communicated somehow, some way with these faith walkers that he was well pleased with their life, pleased with their faith. What a great blessing to have God look at you and say, of course, those of us who walk in faithfulness to Christ are one day going to hear something very similar. Uh, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'm going to make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We're going to hear a well done. These Old Testament saints who walked by faith, somehow or another, received communication from God, well done for walking by faith. Now, once again, verse 3, we'll just read it again. We've already quoted it. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Everything we see and hear and taste and touch and smell were created by an invisible yet mighty creator God, Elohim, the creator of the universes. The writer is saying that this is what these Old Testament saints did. By faith, they believed that what they could not see was true. And as Jesus said to doubting Thomas, because you have seen me, Thomas, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's, that's a, Jesus talking to Thomas about the reality of faith. Amen? Now, next, the writer begins the list of brief biographical sketches of people that walked by faith, reaching back to the very dawn of time. He's going way back to the ancient Garden of Eden, and he's beginning with Abel and Cain. He says in verses 4 and 5, look at your Bible there, follow along with me, Hebrews 11, verses 4 and 5. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Notice, when you walk by faith in the Old Testament, then God declared you righteous. That's how you were righteous. When you walked by faith, when you walked your life out by faith, God declared you righteous. Now it says he obtained witness, Abel did, that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, that is his sacrifice. And through it, Abel being dead, he's still speaking. He's still speaking. Now, you know the story. The book of Genesis recounts how The two brothers, Abel and Cain, decided one day to bring God an offering. Now, I I personally believe this was a form of worship on their part. I'm not sure it was to wash away sins. Um, I don't know that it had gone that far in their understanding yet. Maybe partly because God had given to their parents animal skins to cover their sin. In other words, an animal had to die for God to clothe them. And that was the first hint of there is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. So they, they had perhaps a partial understanding here, but I think it was also a worship offering. Now, Abel was a shepherd, so he brought an animal sacrifice. So there had been the shedding of blood in the sacrifice that Abel brought. But Cain was a farmer, so Cain brought to God the fruit of the ground. And the Bible says God looked at the two of them, and here's what happened. God said, Abel is walking by faith, and Cain is not. Abel has approached by faith, and Cain has not. So the Bible says that he accepted Abel's offering, but rejected Cain. And that, of course, spelled Abel's doom, because Cain became jealous and committed the first murder in the history of the human race by killing his own brother Abel. But for me, this was not just a worship offering, but it would appear that that Abel understood without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. So in the very limited understanding he had, he brought an offering that was based in faith, and Cain did not. Cain's offering was an offering of good works, And Cain represents and symbolizes and illustrates trying to get to God on your own terms, in your own way, doing your own thing. You know, we hear people today say, 
any old way to God will do as long as you're sincere, which is a total lie from the pit of hell. Because Cain learned right here in the garden, if you don't come to God God's way, God doesn't receive it. He, he rejects it. It does, not, it does not suffice with God. So Abel's was of faith. And we're told because of this faith worship offering, though Abel is dead, he still speaks. And that simply means we still talk about his offering of faith today. He's still speaking, that he came to God by faith. So really, he's a type and shadow of the person way down the tunnel of time after Jesus lived and died, was buried and rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven, how those who are saved must come to God. We must come to God on his terms through the shed blood of his son and no other way will do. Now we go to a second personality, Enoch. It says in verse five, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. He pleased God. How did he please God? Walking by faith. Now, this is an amazing testimony and we need to pause here and, and we're kind of, I feel like we're walking on some holy ground because here we have the first raptured man. The writer alludes to the amazing testimony of Enoch. We know very little about him except that he walked with God and his walk with God was one of faith and he pleased God. And one day Enoch is just walking around wherever, doing his normal everyday thing in his everyday workaday world and suddenly he was not. You can't do better than the original Hebrew description here. Suddenly he was not. Why? God took him. God just decided to take him. God's watching, looking down there at Enoch. He said, look how Enoch's walking with me. Look how he is walking with me. Look at the faith he's presenting towards me. Look at this man of mine walking. He, I'd like for him to be here with me. And it says right then, God took him. And this man who was there suddenly disappeared. He was nowhere to be found. He was gone, translated into heaven without having to pass through the valley of the shadow of death, raptured. Now, I've taught you often that the Old Testament is filled with what we call types and shadows, pictures and illustrations and stories that are like signs pointing down time to the day that these types and shadows would become reality for those of us in the new covenant. Now, God took Enoch, raptured him, took him up into heaven in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, just like that, took him as a type and shadow and a picture of what is gonna happen to the church one day, where we're all gonna be walking around one day doing whatever we do, doing our normal everyday workaday thing in our workaday world, and suddenly God is gonna say, it's time. And suddenly God will take us. It'll be like that. We won't slowly drift up like we're in some kind of movie. No, it'll be in a moment, in the twinkle of an eye. The word moment is the Greek, from the Greek word atomos, and we get atom from that word. And it means a, a moment of time so fast you can't divide it. You can't split it. We will be here, and suddenly we will be gone, just like Enoch. One commentator writes, he, Enoch, set God always before him and thought, spoke, and acted as one that considered he was always under God's eye. And he made it his daily business to worship and serve him acceptably. And God one day just took him. Oh, that we would walk with God, dear church, like Enoch did. Every day that we would act as those who understand that God's eye is watching and weighing every one of our thoughts and our words and our actions and our attitudes. And that one day in a moment of time, only God knows. He's going to take us. And suddenly we're going to be looking in the face of the one who died for us. We're going to give God praise right there in our living rooms, wherever you are. You ought to thank the Lord for this incredible truth. For Enoch is a type and shadow of you and me and the reality of the new covenant. 
So in verse 6, with the story of Enoch fresh on his mind, the writer breaks into the list. He, he, he steps in and says, wait a minute, let me give you another fact about faith. He says in verse 6, chapter 11, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. What did it say Enoch did? He pleased God by walking by faith. So the writer has Enoch in mind when he writes this. It's impossible to please God without faith. For he who comes to God must believe two things, that he is, that he, that he exists, and he did create the worlds, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, that you will never seek God in vain. You will never walk with God in vain. You will never, never labor for the Lord in vain, never. For he rewards those who diligently, that is, put effort into, energy into, seeking him. We're told straight up that we must exercise faith to be pleasing to God. Now, what he's pointing to is the message of the entire New Testament. And that is, we are not saved by good works. But we're saved by placing faith in Jesus Christ. We are not saved by our own good works, but we are saved by grace through faith. Not of our works, lest any man should boast. So when he says, you've got to come to God by faith, and that's the only way you'll please him, he has in mind the gospel and how we're saved, and that we are never saved by our own good works, our own efforts. We are saved only by the grace of God by faith, faith alone, faith only. The essential message of the Christian faith is that Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. Uh, There's not one thing I can do to improve upon what Jesus already did. It is all of him and none of me. Religion says do, do, do. But Christianity says done, done, done. We place our faith only and solely in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And unless we do that, we cannot please God. We will never walk through those gates. We will never enjoy heaven. We come to him by faith. And now the writer moves on with more brief but powerful biographical sketches of some more faith walkers. And next we come to Noah. He says in verse 7, look at at your Bibles and follow along with me, Hebrews 11 and verse 7. And let's read it. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things, there's those words again, not yet seen, moved with godly fear. And he prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Now let's keep track here. I want you to notice something. Abel made a worship offering of faith. Enoch had a walk of faith. And now Noah illustrates the obedience of faith. So we've got the worship of faith, the walk of faith, and the obedience of faith in the first three biographical sketches provided by the writer. Now, regarding Noah, we know the story that God appeared to him somehow, some way, and he experienced a divine warning. And the warning said to him, Noah, I'm going to judge the world. I'm going to destroy the whole world. The entire human race, anybody that does not repent is going to be destroyed. And Noah, I'm telling you to build an ark. I want you to build a massive boat. I'm asking you, Noah, I'm commanding you to do it. And anybody that gets into that boat will be saved. Of course, here again, an incredible type and shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our New Testament ark. And anybody in him will be saved and not experience the flood of judgment. But it says he was warned of something not yet seen. Remember, the definition of faith is it's the evidence of things not seen. So Noah receives this warning of something over 100 years in the future. And yet God warns him. The future judgment of the world was not yet seen. When you looked out there at life, at the life Noah woke up to every day, people were getting up, farming, building, marrying, giving in marriage, taking care of business, just living out their lives. The last thing it looked like was that everything was going to be destroyed by a giant deluge of water. 
But that is exactly what God told him. And even though he couldn't see it, by faith, he moved with godly fear. He obeyed God's instructions. And in over a hundred years of time, Noah, every day, got out there and swung that hammer and nailed those nails and built that ark day by day. Think about working on something for over a century when there's nothing you can see to substantiate or give you a reason to do what you're doing except the Word of God, the Word of God, and he believed it. He believed in spite of ridicule. He believed in spite of nobody in his generation. Not one person believed his warnings of coming judgment and repented. This man preached for over 100 years without a solitary convert, and yet he continued. So what we're seeing unfold in this biographical list is how faith manifested itself in the lives of different faith walkers. Abel's worship offering of faith, it affected his worship. Enoch's walk of faith, it affected his lifestyle. Noah's obedience of faith. And of course, all of these aspects of faith were to walk in. We're to worship by faith, we're to walk by faith, and we're to obey by faith, amen? So faith affects your worship, it affects your walk, and it affects your obedience. Now, next we're coming to Father Abraham, the father of our faith. And he says in verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed God when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out. I love this next statement, not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the very same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Wow, those, two, those verses, 8 to 10, are so loaded. Now, Abraham illustrates the trust of faith, the trust of faith. Put yourself in Abraham's sandals just for a minute. God speaks to him in his city. Now, when God spoke to him, he was 75 years old. He was probably retirement age. Uh, he, was, he had been around a while. And he was in the place that was all he'd ever known. Ur of the Chaldees was the only thing he'd ever known. So God speaks to him. He says, Abraham. Now remember, Abraham had no Bible. Abraham knows, had no scriptures to open up and read anything that would have helped him, encouraged him, or built his faith. Because Moses was still centuries away, and he wrote the first scripture. So he had no Bible, and yet God communicated somehow to him in this pagan city of Ur where they worship the sun and says to him, I want you to leave Abraham, or Abram at the time, and I want you to go to a place that I'm going to show you. I want you to leave your friends, leave your livelihood, leave your religion, leave everything. And it says Abraham obeyed trusting God implicitly to lead him though he knew not where he was going. Now that's trust. When, when God says, I want you to just start walking, I'm not going to tell you where you're going. You don't know how it's all going to end up, but I want you just to start walking. Now that's where he exemplifies the trust of faith. One commentator says this, if Terah, Abraham's father, and Abram followed the Euphrates to Haran, and then Abram went down to Canaan from there. They traveled more than 1,300 miles. Now, if I was to get in my car today and go 1,300 miles, that's a journey I don't want to make in a car. But imagine with camels and cattle and just the sandals on your feet and walking and journeying 1,300 hundred miles, not knowing where you're going till you get there. That's trust. Some people don't trust God enough to journey 15 miles to church, much less 1,300 miles, not even knowing where you're going to end up. And here is where his trusting faith gets even more amazing. Because did you notice that he said Abraham or Abram and his, his, his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob 
refused to build houses in the promised land. They did not build a house. They insisted on living in tents. Why? Why were they tent dwellers their whole life? Because Abram knew that the promised land was only a type and shadow, a sign pointing far into the future when he and all of God's people of faith in both the Old and the New Testaments would enter the true promised land called heaven. So what was he saying? I'm going to live in tents because this world ain't my home. This world isn't my home. So I'm not going to build a permanent house here. I'm going to live in a tent because I'm only passing through. And folks, let me tell you, you and me right now, we're only passing through. Life is so quick. What is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time like a morning fog. You look out there and you see and you can hardly see through it. But in one hour, the sun has burned it away and it's gone. That's your life. It's so quick, so brief. Uh, When you look at it, the fact that it's sandwiched between two eternities, eternity past and eternity future, it's a blink. It's a camera flash. And that's it. And that's the way that Abram looked at it. He said, I'm only passing through. You look at this world like we're not here forever. This is like a hotel. We're checked in for a season and then we check out. It says that he and his son Isaac and grandson Jacob were tent dwellers because they waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. They were waiting for the city that God built. And that's the new Jerusalem that will one day come down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her bridegroom. And what a day that will be. And that's what they were looking for. So you talk about faith being the evidence of things you don't yet see. Abram was walking in in some incredible faith. Now we'll close out tonight with the faith of Sarah. Look at chapter 11, verse 11. It says, by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was way past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Now notice what it says about her faith. What was her faith grounded in? She judged God faithful. See, you can't have faith in a God you don't trust. And Sarah sat there and thought about God. She lived life for a a lot of years. And then she said, you know what? I believe the God who gave us that promise is a faithful God. And so I'm judging him faithful. And that was directly connected to her ability to place faith in God that gave her the strength to conceive seed. That's why I tell you all the time, it matters what you believe about God. What do you believe about God? It matters so much what you believe about God. Whatever you believe about God needs to come straight from the Bible the word of God rightly taught because the Bible is what shapes our belief system about God. And Sarah said, you know what? I judge that God is faithful and he's gonna come through with what he promised us. And we know from Genesis that when Sarah conceived, she was 90 and Abram was 100. And notice that we're told by faith, Sarah received strength to conceive seed. The word for strength here is dunamis, meaning power or ability. Sarah received supernatural power and supernatural ability that she did not have in the natural. She was well past. Her body was old. She was well past being able to conceive seed, well beyond childbearing years. Physically, it was an impossibility But by faith, Sarah experienced what Isaiah spoke of in the familiar verse in Isaiah 40, verse 31. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew, shall receive fresh strength. So Sarah illustrates the quickening of faith. And not just Sarah, but Abraham as well. Now, pay attention here because this is so powerful. Because again, we're dealing with not only the reality of what happened in the Old Testament narrative, but we're also dealing with powerful types and shadows and pictures of what you and I are experiencing in reality in the new covenant. It says of Abraham 
therefore from one man, now listen to these next words, him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Now again, reproductively speaking, Abraham was as good as dead. The Greek word here is nekrao. We get nekros from that, like necromancy, you know, trying to communicate with the dead. And we use the word nekros in the English language to describe dead things. It comes from nekrao. And it literally means without life. We're being told that reproductively speaking, Abraham was without life. He was as good as dead, but he was quickened, energized, empowered, enabled to defy natural law, and he and Sarah experienced a supernatural miracle. Now, let me bring this home to you and me, the word quickened. They were literally quickened, and that means God gives life to something dead. The body of Jesus in the tomb on that third morning, the first Easter morning. The body of Jesus was necrao, necros, dead, as dead as any man was ever dead. But the spirit of God, the resurrection power of God entered that tomb, touched the body of Jesus and quickened his body so that he who had been dead arose, quickened, Now, in Ephesians 2, 1, the Bible says, you, speaking to Christians, hath he quickened who were dead. Now, the same word there, nekrao, you were literally, spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins, dead. Spiritually, you had no life. I had no life. We were dead men, dead women walking around, spiritually speaking. But when we called out on Christ, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead came to dwell inside of us. And when he came to dwell inside of us, he quickened our mortal bodies. And we who were dead came to life, spiritually speaking. And it's going to be the same thing when the rapture happens. Those who have already died in Christ, who are buried in the grave, when Jesus comes again, the same Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead is going to touch their mortal dead bodies, necrao, dead, and quicken them to life and instantly clothe them with a glorified body. What a glorious truth. What an amazing reality. So here we see Abraham and Sarah reproductively necrao, dead, and yet they were quickened when they placed faith in God. And then we come down to Jesus, quickened, because he was the son of God and death could not hold him. And those of us who came to Christ quickened by his spirit coming to live inside of us. And one day soon and very soon, a trumpet's going to blow. And that Holy Spirit of resurrection is going to touch those who have already died and those who are alive and remain on the earth. And we're going to be caught up, quickened by his mighty power. And what a day that'll be. Death will be swallowed up in victory. The Bible goes on to say that by the miracle Abraham and Sarah experienced, the entire Jewish race was begun, resulting in a people numbering as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. So it's easy to say the Jewish race is the result of a miracle. A miracle where Abraham and Sarah believed God by faith for quickening miraculous power. And because they believe by faith, the Jewish race is here. And the Christian church is the result of a quickening, a quickening. Jesus quickened and raised from the dead. And we are resurrected people. Isn't that beautiful? So let's summarize it. Abel illustrated faith's worship. Enoch faith's walk. Noah, faith's obedience. Abraham, faith's trust. And Sarah, faith's quickening. And all of those attributes, all of those manifestations of faith in these different lives are things that we want to appropriate 
in our own life. Amen? Well, I hope you enjoyed it. I can't go any further. Listen, I could not rush through chapter 11. It's just I could, no way I could handle it in one sitting. I hope this blessed you. And uh, next time we're going to pick it up in verse 13. You might want to read ahead, read through the rest of the chapter. And we're going to look at our heavenly hope. And it's going to be so good. Well, before we go, let me remind you again, we miss you so much. I'm so looking forward to getting with every one of you again, standing in this pulpit and looking out and seeing real faces instead of just camera lenses. But until then, we're with you in spirit. We're with you in love. We're praying for you each and every day. We pray God's presence and peace be yours. And as I thank you every single time we meet, thank you for your so faithful giving. Uh, I have almost been brought to tears at some of the, uh, just, just the faithful, every single day, people are sending finances in to support and uphold and sustain their local church. And I, I thank you on behalf of myself and Cindy and the entire staff and all the children around the world who are being fed through our missions works because we've been able to keep on giving to missions because you kept on giving to your church as unto the Lord and not unto men. Thank you for it. Don't forget this Saturday, April 25th, 10 to noon and 4 to 6, we will be in the parking lot handing out the communion elements, saying hello to hundreds of you, and we're going to have communion together Sunday, April 26th at 9, 10, 30, and 12. Why not throw a watch party, invite people to watch with you, uh, give them some crackers and juice and let them partake of communion with you or tell them, hey, follow my church in communion this Sunday because everybody needs to be celebrating the body and the blood of the Lord in times like these. God bless you. We love you. I'll see you Sunday for communion.